the Alabama Crops Report podcast, your trusted information source for Alabama agriculture. Hey, everybody, and welcome in to the Alabama Crops Report podcast. I'm Dr. Scott Graham, Extension Entomologist with Alabama Extension. And I'm Dr. Amanda Shear. I'm an Extension Plant Pathologist, also with Alabama Cooperative Extension. We are excited to be releasing regularly scheduled podcast episodes with up-to-date information about Alabama crops throughout the year. You'll be hearing from Extension personnel from all over the state with the latest research and management recommendations. So, Scott, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, As we record today, it's uh, probably the prettiest day of the year. How about you? Yeah, I'm just excited to kind of get a break from the rain and the cold. Yeah, yeah, see a little sunshine. Well, today for our uh, guests, we have Dr. Steve Brown, the Extension Cotton Agronomist for, uh, for the state of Alabama. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. As pretty a day as it is, though, it's not time to plant cotton. So, Well, yeah, I, there's probably some folks in parts of Texas that are starting to get ready. That's true. That's true, but not in Alabama, we hope. Well, what, uh, what, what's our outlook looking like for Alabama? I know you've been out and about talking with folks and trying to kind of get the pulse of the state. So what do you think cotton looks like? Last year was a negative year for us at the end. You know, we, I think we had a very good crop, but it turned out dismally from – from a yield standpoint, from a quality standpoint, but we've turned the page and uh, we've seen we've seen cotton hit eighty six. Even today, it went over eighty eight cents. It retreated a little bit. So, with an eight eighty five or eighty five cents or better, I, I, it's definitely going to entice a good a good planting in twenty twenty one. Now that, you know, cotton season is fast approaching, one of the first things that cotton producers have to kind of consider is variety selection. Uh, Do you have any, you know, thoughts in terms of how cotton producers can mix multiple varieties and spread those throughout the cross the farm? The the word you used was mix, and I think that is a, a good word. We probably need to think about three to five varieties in our overall portfolio that we plant on the farm. Because we need to spread a risk a little bit. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. And so we do pick several ones of those that we're familiar with. We probably also want to leave a little room to test some new things that are coming down the pipe. So how, how would you suggest a grower, what percentage of, of kind of testing on his field, on his farm should he do? Yeah, I would, I would probably want to commit 80 to 90 percent on what I know, what's tested and, and I've seen and we've seen maybe for a year or two. But my new stuff, maybe relegate that to 10%, at the most 20%, the brand new stuff, the newest of the new. So it'd be a a small portion, but we're transitioning in technology, so we need to learn what's going to be the next best and greatest thing coming. So we know yield is primarily what's driving, you know, our our variety uh, selection process, but I like to think as a bug man that that you know our BT traits are really important. Is that how much consideration do you think folks are making for for insect traits versus uh, herbicide traits and things like that? As as important as insect control is, that's probably secondary because we have good we we've we've done well with our insect management thanks to you and others. So uh, I, I think the first fork in the road is making a decision on herbicide technology. And the two forks, of course, are the 2,4-D trait with uh, Enlist or the, the Dicamba trait package with Extend. So you make that decision, or you, you, do make, you could make a decision that maybe I could mix technologies on the same farm. Not many are going to do that, but, if they, but, they, but that's possible. So you make that choice, and then that gives you uh, 
uh, maybe uh, uh, narrow it begins to narrow your selection on, on the choices that you'll put in your portfolio mix. And I would like to add, uh, even though, Scott, your first love is definitely insects, you do have to consider variety selection for diseases as well. Um, your different cotton varieties will vary in terms of how they respond to target spot. And even the new cotton leaf rolled dwarf virus, we see a little bit more incidents with like phytogen 400 and 500, some of those aggressive indeterminate varieties. And I'd add to that that we have several options now for root knot nematode control. And just this year, we'll see varieties that actually deliver both root knot nematode control as well as reniform nematode control. So as you move to the heavier soils, uh, reniform is becoming more and more a problem. So with options there, that'll be another part of the decision. Do you, do you plant nematode-resistant varieties? So speaking of planting, I know we're starting to get ready to, to get fields ready to plant and things like that. What are, at this time of the year, what are things that cotton growers need to be doing to prepare to plant? It's, well, it's awfully wet in a lot of places, so it's kind of held them back. But they obviously need to know about uh, soil conditions, soil tests, and do I, need to, do I need to address pH with liming and what's going to be my fertilizer package. And fertilizer is actually uh, going up, up, up in price. So that's something that, of, of consideration. But making sure I can get which varieties that I want, that's going to be another thing. Go ahead and making those orders and getting the seed treatments in place to, to uh, make preparations at, for an April or May planting. So Steve, speaking of planting, when should producers start thinking about planting some of these varieties? You think about a lot of things. The The biggest driver, we, we think calendar, of course, which is we're going to think about planting cotton beginning sometime in mid-May, maybe earlier in some situation. But the real driving force is uh, what's our soil temperature? We want to see soil temperatures at 65 degrees at, say, the two to four inch depth for several days with a good forecast. Uh, we also have to think about soil moisture. And if I'm a dry land producer and it's the 15th or 20th of April, and I've got some moisture, I'm going to have to plant. My ideal window may be later, but I, but if I'm a dry land producer, I've got to take advantage of, of when I have soil moisture. And I would say moisture is a, is a more limiting factor as we go south. I think soil temperatures probably hold us out maybe uh, as we go to the northern part of the state. So Steve, now that you're starting to talk more about like soil temperature and soil moisture, it's really getting me to start thinking about seed quality. You know, especially from a plant pathology perspective, you know, planting high quality seed can definitely help reduce uh, the impact of seedling diseases like the damping off complex and some seed rots. Um, so what are some of your thoughts just about seed quality in general for this season? Seed quality is a huge issue. Uh, when, I, when I started in the cotton business, farmers were ordering seed by the ton and they were probably paying somewhere around $30 a bag. Now, with all the bells and whistles and the best seed treatments, that number may be over $700 uh, just for a single bag. Um, so seed quality, they're, they're paying a premium price, so they should get a, a premium product. Let's talk about that a little more. One of the ways I'm thinking about seed quality and you should a farmer should be able to get this information from any dealer, and that is what is the warm germ and what is the cool germ, and by law it's got to be seventy five or eighty percent warm germ, 
and that that's really tested at a, an ideal temperature. But the real number that helps me think about seedling bigger and how good my quality is is a cool germ, and that test is going to be conducted at about 64 and a half degrees. And and the better that number is, the more confidence I have that this cotton is going to come out of the ground. We'd like to see uh, cool germ values 70 percent or greater. The industry standard. Probably the floor is is probably around sixty percent. Companies don't hate; they would not like to sell below that. That they occasionally do, but so warm and cool germ numbers are going to be something that I obtain to know how good is my seed. So let, let's let's give the non agronomist out there okay. uh, what, what is a, a warm germ and a cool germ. You, basically, you put seed on a wet towel and keep it moist, and you control the temperature. And the ideal temperature is, I believe, eighty six degrees, and it can be a constant eighty six degrees, or you can fluctuate it. So warm germ is just, do I have viable seed? If it's viable seed and it's there for for say five days, seven, eight, ten days, and it and it doesn't germinate. That's poor. You know, we don't have a viable seed, but normally at about four or five days in that situation, you're going to see uh, a radical root emerge on that, and 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 so that's that's your measure of warm germ. Cool germ is is more of a you, you're 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 doing the same thing, but you're doing it under a marginal temperature. As cotton is temperatures approach sixty degrees, cotton's not doesn't grow very well, or doesn't you know some would argue it ceases growth altogether at sixty. But but that with that marginal temperature, if it still germinates and forms a, a radical or a root, you know, hey, I've got pretty good, I've got aggressive seed that should come up under a variety of, no pun intended, but a variety of conditions. <laughs> so what you, I, you know, it's important that we're protecting these seeds. A, a bag of cotton seed is certainly not a, an inexpensive thing to purchase for our growers. So what are you looking at in terms of uh, seed treatments? Uh, I know you're not the not the entomologist, you're not the plant pathologist, but what would you like to see on a on a seed? Well, the seed treatment that usually from a company, uh, you can buy a base treatment or a premium treatment, and some offer a mid range. The base is simply going to have one or two fungicides, and then a an insecticide such as a that's going to protect it from a storage standpoint to keep stuff from eating on eating it while it's in the bag. Then you step up from there on your premium treatments would include uh, multiple fungicides, higher rates of imidacloprid, and then a, some sort of nematicide type treatment. Uh, my opinion is that uh, back in the mid 2000s, when we really converted the business to seed treatments, we we went away from in-furrow treatments or in-furrow sprays even, and we opted for convenience rather than efficacy. So, so I, I want some kind of protection, whether it's a seed treatment or a spray or an in-furrow granular treatment, particularly for thrips. Um, but the seed treatments help us, but they're not outstanding in terms of if we have significant pest pressure of the three different pests, they're not great in, in, that, in that regard. So, Steve, how would you compare, you know, doing a seed treatment versus an in-furrow treatment or a combination of the two? Well, it, the, the seed treatments, again, are easy to do. You buy it from the factory or you can get a downstream treatment at your local dealer. And when you do that, when you get a downstream treatment from your dealer, you've probably got a lot more options than you might have from the factory. And so you might just concentrate on one. You might uh, maybe an insecticide or insecticide fungicide package. Uh, but the infer treatments, you're going to be spraying one of our products. It could be a metacloprid, it could be a bound, or, or some of your your fungicide types, or you could be putting a, a 
ag logic type material in furrow. That, so you're getting a lot more active ingredient on that seed and in that root zone. So I, I think long-term data would support the idea that the in-furrow treatments, sprayed or granular, are going to deliver more consistent control uh, for the different pests that we deal with. Now, to, to spray in-furrow, uh, you got to be rigged up to do that. It takes a little extra time. And, and on the granular part, many farmers have removed their insecticide hoppers in recent years. So that uh, I, I talked with some yesterday, actually, that were going back to that. So that's a, it's, it's, it's time-consuming to do the in-furrow treatment, and some of the products are, are a little hazard to, hazardous to deal with. So uh, all that goes into people's mindset as they, as they think about seed treatments or other options. Yeah, with, with your, your foliar insecticides, or not your foliar, your uh, in-furrow insecticides in particular, we've got to make sure we're calibrated right. Yes. Like you said, we've got to make sure we've got the equipment. Uh, and for instance, uh, in, in Prattville this past year on the research station, we did a trial, and in-furrow acephate did not look very good, but we planted it. It was cold. It was wet. We got a lot of early season rain. And what, what we think happened was we just leached out that insecticide before the roots, the seedling really started growing and the roots were able to uptake that insecticide. So that's that's something with the seed treatments. It's, I won't call it foolproof or dummy proof, but it's about as close as you can get really in, in, uh, in insect management. But like you said, you don't always see as good control, uh, particularly under high pressure situations earlier planted cotton when the the plant's just not growing as well Uh, so i I would agree with that and i'll add one thing as we progress through the the planting season the planting window and the conditions get warmer and i'm assuming we got adequate soil moisture to germinate the crop some of the treatments become less critical uh, because the cotton is going to come out of the ground very rapidly anyway. So uh, as we get later in the season I'm, i'm very comfortable with maybe just getting by with the seed treatment so, Steve, what would be some of your, you know, overall take-home messages for the do's and don'ts of seed treatments that you would want growers to take away from this podcast? My my biggest thing is do something for thrips. I, I don't think you want if you're naked out there, you're you're you may get by one out of fifty times. I just think you've got to have some protection, whether that's a seed treatment or in for a spray, or you spray it when it comes right out of the ground. I just think thrips are so prevalent. And can be so devastating in certain years. So that's I guess that's going to be my biggest thing. I would maybe the second thing is if I have intense pressure, I'm going to look beyond the seed treatments. To, I'm going to do something else to supplement that, or maybe to even displace that to get better control. Whether it's a a serious uh, seedling disease threat, or uh, I expect uh, uh, significant thrips pressure. Or if I know I have a nematode problem, I'm going I'm to do some different things. Well, Steve, what about our uh, variety testing? Can you give us just kind of a, a brief overview of, of what y'all are doing? I know you've got a lot of uh, you know variety testing things across the state. Now, these are on-farm trials, a lot of them that are helping growers see in a real-world situation how are these varieties well, we have two two programs, two sets of testing, and one would be on the different experiment stations, such as uh, the Wiregrass Station or Gulf Coast or E.V. Smith or the Tennessee Valley or Prattville. We'll have uh, uh, what we call the official variety trials, which would be small plot information. And in those trials, you might see 30 or 40 or 50 different varieties. And so those are going to give you 
maybe genetic potential in a very uh, uniform setting and, and maybe give a measure of agronomic potential. And then what you referred to was the on-farm trials that we have uh, north and south. And we're going to hopefully have maybe 15 or 20 of those scattered across the state. But as you mentioned, those would be with farmers. Those would be planter width wide by the length of the field and a couple of replications usually. It would be farmer management, farmer conditions, and we'd, we'd get weights on that, fiber quality. We'd also do some growth measurements just to learn a little bit more about how the different varieties grow. Usually in those sets, we might have 12 varieties. We might have some 12 in the south and a little different set for the north. So those would be real world, that's real world data that we can compare with the OVT program to, to begin to, to provide information to make the choices on variety selection. So, Steve, you provided a lot of good information for producers today, and we really enjoyed having you on the show for the second episode of the podcast. Uh, is there any final departing words of wisdom you'd like to give producers for 2021? As we've got cotton to 85 cents, I'm not an economist, but I'd be booking some of my crop to protect it as we look forward. I, at 85 cents, we can make a profit there. So let's protect at least a portion of our expected production. What, what was the quote we heard yesterday? You can't go broke if you make a profit. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're going to we're going to close you, leave you, going to put you under the gun here, and we're going to ask for a number. What are our uh, cotton acres going to be this year? Okay. In 2019, we had around 520 or 30, 535,000 acres. This past year, the FSA number was somewhere around 445 to 450. Uh, I'm going to probably guess, at one point I thought we'd be down 10% or more, but I'm going to say we're going to be in that 450,000 range. We might move a little higher given the price strength, maybe given some pressures on on, on corn, since fertilizer is so escalated in price, that's corn requires so much more fertilizer. So maybe we'll see a slight uptick in cotton acres, or it could be flat in that 450,000 range. All right. Well, Dr. Steve Brown, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today on the Alabama Crops Report podcast. Uh, as always, if we can ever be of any help to anybody, please don't hesitate to reach out and uh, let us know. Amanda, enjoyed it today. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Steve. We enjoyed having you. Thank you all very much. The Alabama Crops Report is a production of the Alabama Cooperative Extension System.